Chapter 25 The Election of One's Personal Quietus Part 1 The Everly Brothers. That song Paul had been whistling in the hall, it was all I have to do is dream and stuck on a loop in my head. Not the smooth love song from a time when rock stars wore suits and ties unironically, but Paul's nervous whistle. Did the song just pop into Paul's head after Yukov mentioned that O'Neill was dreaming? And neither of them got around to explaining why dreaming was mentioned so emphatically. And then the weirdest shit ever happened. Lucille looked over at me. She held my gaze a moment. It frightened me because there was something else going on that I couldn't figure out at the moment. I felt slightly lightheaded and giddy, but I attributed that to the rotting thing behind the containment unit window. Before she could draw the breath to speak, I somehow knew what she was about to say. Your father, Lucille began. He owned an old red dot truck. Your father would spend hours on the weekend in the garage unloading his stress by fixing it up. You called it his fishing truck, because he always talked about taking you to the lake in it when he was all done. This was after he stopped drinking and your mother took him back. It was a good time. You remember him playing the oldies, which you hated, because it wasn't your kind of music and... Your father couldn't carry a tune. Paul stood to the side, head down and hands clasped behind his back, like he was reflecting over a closed casket. I don't recall what I said back exactly. What I do recall is the realization that Lucille's words weren't coming through a speaker or echoing from the hard chamber walls. They were in my head. Like the memory of my dead father's laugh, his bad singing. Like the voice that naturally comes when you read the words of a character in a book. If not for that frightening but certain fact, I would have assumed Paul got that information from me when I was drugged. At that point, I still denied what I'd heard. I looked at Paul and demanded to know. How did you know about my father? He seemed startled and looked genuinely confused. What about your father? He apparently did not hear what I'd heard. Shit, I didn't even know you had one. I thought you just shot out of the forehead of Zeus. Lucille answered me again inside my head. In learning how the human body and mind work, we stumbled upon ways to unlock certain functions. I felt lightheaded. The last of her words faded like radio signals hitting interference. I didn't like the thought of something inside my mind touching my thoughts and rooting around my memories like fingers digging through my insides. I felt faint and things went gray and sparkly. The world spun into black for a moment. I shook myself awake, ejecting myself from a nightmare with that psychic egress cord that pulls you free and back into a safe, darkened bedroom. Unfortunately for me, instead of waking next to my Molly, I found myself in a high-backed office chair, in the same room, staring at that chamber again. I didn't expect you to crash like that, kiddo, Paul said from behind me, nearly causing me to tip out of my chair again in alarm. He circled around to the front and put himself between me and the chamber. 
I take it you were just touched by Lucille's two-way brain radio. I couldn't speak. I could barely keep my breathing under control. It helps, Paul continued. If you close your eyes. Don't look at it. I mean, her. Them, maybe? She talks plural. Yeah, well, not for nothing, Jill, but she knows damn well she's falling apart like roadkill in summer. She's good about keeping quiet, but you can understand your dwelling on that feeds her with signals that distresses her. Concern for the eaters? Politeness? Paul seemed to want to keep this thing in the tube happy. I wanted to say a few things on the subject, but I didn't. It just wasn't worth it to get worked up again. I relied on the wisdom of Vance Nash, a veteran foreign correspondent who wrote about covering stories under stressful and dangerous situations. Facts never change. Perception can be controlled. Stick to the facts and tell the story. Ask questions. Hope you don't die in the process. How is she doing this, Paul? You probably haven't noticed that there is no physical way Lucille could be as articulate as you hear her. She's speaking all right, but it's... It's like a Muppet. She's pantomiming the words through a dead, breathless mouth. The chest movement is just instinct. He sat down in his own office chair and added, Your brain is going to respond to what it hears in the way that it expects to hear it. The transmission just bypasses the aural processors and connects with the part of your brain that hears. Since you didn't know her voice, you're hearing what you think she sounds like. You'll get used to it. I closed my eyes and replayed her words. I remember them perfectly, like she laid a track recording in my head. Other voices and conversations fade or fracture in my memory, but her words remain clear, as though she were repeating them at that moment, even at this moment. I considered the words and asked myself how she could be dead and psychic when she answered directly. We are telepathic. We cannot see the future or divine the history of an object by touch. We can see a great past amassed in the memories of our collected selves. Human minds are a new world to explore. Through memories, we understand our hosts. Through understanding, we grieve the horrors we brought upon you. Through those memories and the people whose histories we now share, we live and relive the horrors we've inflicted. We are the unintentional killers, condemned to relive the murders we've committed. I let that one sink in. My eyes were closed. That way my brain could trick itself into believing it was receiving those words through my ears. Don't ask me why. Like anything abnormal going on in the brain, the afflicted do not respond or cope rationally. It's just important to cope. You are not crazy, Lucille added, perhaps at the time and perhaps just now as I wrote it. It is as intense for us as for you.
Reaching out to hear outside minds is difficult. What we feel and experience is sometimes so powerful that it's like a sudden scream in a quiet room. A scream that is never silenced. We prefer to speak in dreams. Dreams? I replied. Is that why O'Neill is sleeping? Are you speaking to him? Yes. Paul explained. The brain is in the most receptive state to receive and transmit when dreaming. O'Neill is preparing to receive us. Lucille's words forced my brain to accept the difference between his voice and her thoughts. I tried reaching out without speaking. How do you know O'Neill is doing anything? Because, O'Neill replied, I'm speaking with Lucille right now. His came as a sudden unexpected whisper just behind my ear. I jerked my head around to look and Paul took a startled step backward. Where are you, O'Neill? I tried to reach out across whatever channel carried his voice. I had a sense that if I tried very hard, I might see him in his dream. That lightheadedness returned suddenly. We share his thoughts with you, explained Lucille. Oh, I am fine, O'Neill assured me in a sleepy voice that conveyed the peace I wished him in our last meeting. You are a sweet girl. Thank you for your kindness. I wish you peace as well. Did I remember him saying that, or did he just say that in my head? O'Neill? O'Neill? Editor's note. I'm getting lightheaded again. I'm going to push on and edit later. They explained that part of Lucille's blood, or the black, infected fluid still chambered in her still heart, would be injected into O'Neill, and the things that make up whatever it was I was speaking with would not infect O'Neill's body, but emulate the marrow inside his bones, consuming and replacing the cancerous cells. Instead of explaining in words, Paul was able to project ideas and imagery across the psychic network, showing me what I needed to help me understand. It was simplified and cartoonish the way the bad cells were gobbled up by other intelligent bad cells, but they didn't go after O'Neill's brain. They stopped once the good work was done. I asked no one in particular. When you're done healing, they'll, what, leave the body? We cannot leave the body, Lucia replied. We must become one with it. That part of us will move on and become isolated from us, but it takes our knowledge and our instruction to find the sickness and fix it. Paul looked uneasy. He kept shifting weight from one foot to another, checking the floor for holes. What's Paul thinking about? I asked because I could feel him putting up walls to me. As he explained the process to be used on O'Neill, I could peer beyond the immediate thought and see a larger, more ominous context. There was another step, and Paul took pains not to linger on those elements very long, and perhaps sensing that I was looking into those ideas, shut me out completely.
Paul is preoccupied with convincing you to accept his plan to introduce our blood to your healthy body. Lucille could have taken a shit out of her belly button and I would have been less surprised. Paul looked a little uncomfortable with the revelation, and he took a moment to decide which expression to make. The one in support of the lying denial or the sheepish look and the shrug. He went with the second option, adding, Yeah, I was going to go in a little softer on the cell, build it up, but yeah. Part 2 I said nothing. I didn't have to. My mind was screaming. Alone in my wild imagination, Lucille and Paul had to have cut themselves off from the emotion and the panic electrifying my thoughts. I wanted to run, but the room spun so fast I couldn't fix my attention on the direction of the door. No strength in my legs to pull me up out of the chair. I considered throwing myself onto the floor and dragging myself away in any direction, away from Paul and the corpse in its tomb. But then... Darkness fell again, and... I was at peace. It set in rapidly, like the moment after a bad scare. A bright world, so deliciously normal and ordinary, fell into focus around me. The nightmare of human slaughter was just a cold chill and an early morning breeze. Fleming Street, my gorgeous little tree-lined piece of suburban boring unremarkable little brick cape cod style houses perfectly square bushes planted identically in front of the same dull big bay windows in every last beautiful cookie cutter house from there to fulton avenue home excited i turned toward the sound of the everly brothers on an old radio i was outside dad's garage standing in the driveway of my home i was there with molly she wore jeans and an old led zeppelin concert t-shirt her bright eyes and smile gave me comfort as I realized what we were about to do. I ran my fingers through her thick red curls before we joined hands and walked up the driveway toward the man bent over the engine of his red pickup truck. I could smell the oil. The rest of the garage was a mess as usual. I was careful not to startle him. Daddy? And there he was. A little rough around the edges with patches of thinning hair sticking up from his scalp. <laughs> Gray hairs like weeds in a garden. The diet he started before I left for school seemed to be helping. He was still pudgy, but the oil-stained sweatshirt he always wore in the garage seemed to be a little baggier than I remember. It was so good to see him. I almost broke my rule about hugging someone drenched in truck guts. I spoke the words I spent rehearsing the entire trip home. Daddy, this is Molly. I met her on the way home from school. She's, um, he was filthy from working on the engine and his hands were greasy, but that didn't stop Molly from offering her own when I introduced her as my girlfriend. Dad didn't frown or even take it as a joke. He smiled warmly. He accepted Molly's hand graciously and made her acquaintance sincerely. Very glad to meet you, Molly. I hear you make my girl very happy. That's the only thing I ever wanted her to be. In our dreams, 
we choose to leave out the facts. Part of our brain allows us the bliss of ignorance that permits our fantasies to exist without even the hardest of our truths coming into conflict. However, once a fantasy is fulfilled and finds its warm happily ever after, memories return. Memories like my father dying before I even graduated high school. Memories of a funeral. Memories of one of mom's office co-workers, the one I always said hugged a little too long and close at the company picnics. Suddenly comfortable napping my father's recliner. Comfortable telling me when and how to live my life. Memories of the old fishing truck getting towed away by its new owner just as I got off the bus from school. Turning my best day ever into a revision of my personal history and the deletion of my childhood. Memories like the last words my father ever said to me. Make sure you get the dishes done when you get home. Memory began rewriting the dream when I remembered that happily ever after was just another lie adults tell to shut you up or keep you from becoming too damn afraid to grow up. A sudden, cool breeze carried dead leaves across the driveway. As he had many other nights since he died, the dream of Dad began to fade. He looked sad that he had to go as his flesh and clothes faded to a chalky gray. The energy and life that belonged to the fantasy disappeared into Molly's pale, bony grip. Of course, like my father, my fairy tale red Molly had disappeared as well. Gripping his hand, Lucille now stood next to me, drawing my father's life into her body. When all the color and life left his body, the remains turned to smoke on the breeze. They had followed me into my dream. Paul stepped up from our neighbor's yard. Thankfully clothed, I still couldn't look at him. I watched the remains of my father cross into the neighbor's yard, rising up over their roof. I couldn't even bring myself to weep. Why are you doing this to me? Lucille answered. You control your dreams, Jill. We step into the roles you give us. The neighborhood no longer resembled the idyllic past. The grass stood a foot high and full of weeds. Front doors and garage decks hung open next to broken or boarded windows. It looked like every neighborhood I'd seen on the way to HG World. The ruins of Fleming Street had been abandoned. The open garage was empty and the door leading to the kitchen looked like it had been broken down. I didn't want to see any more. The instinct of dreams told me what was rotting on the floor of the rear master bedroom. I rephrased my question. Why me, specifically? Why not? A number of names flashed across my subconscious. David, Ellen Harris, hell, even Krantz. But I didn't go further for fear of sounding like I was nominating them for this kind of torture. You are unique. We chose you for your curiosity, your imagination. Through you, we are learning great things about humanity that had eluded us. We understand the people encamped above much better through your memories and interaction. You genuinely care about the people up above. The way you've written of them Think and feel about even the darker souls. Tells us you are at least open to a way of fixing things, even if it means a high personal cost. 
You know it is only a matter of time before chaos destroys them. You feel that time is coming. You are correct. Lucille had changed. What she'd taken from my father had somehow restored her to life. Her skin was no longer pale and waxy, but soft and warm, her eyes an autumn brown. Still naked, she had no open tears or surgical scars in her flesh. Lucille was alive and looking at me, not through me. As the instants passed, her hair darkened, her skin toned and toasted to an early summer tan. She did not look much older than me. She had not been infected, but she was brought into H.G. World already dying. Like Paul, she kept those memories hidden from me with a psychic firewall. But her old life, one of boundless optimism and opportunity, broke my heart. Her memories of that life fell open like a scrapbook within our shared dream. Images of people, names hidden, endings represented by black holes in time, the whole of her last year looked like a censored document in three dimensions. She wasn't sparing me those details. She had made the conscious choice to hide them from herself. My probing of those memories felt like poking real wounds. I moved my thoughts away from her as I felt my own sense of unease rising within me again. I looked behind her, down Fleming Street where I grew up. It looked again as I remembered it. The breeze ended and the leaves circled and spun down onto lawns and sidewalks. I felt a little more relaxed by the normal, safe vision of home. A thin woman, also naked, stepped up from the street and took a place behind Lucille. The women did not acknowledge each other, though I sensed each knew the other was there. I knew in the instinct of dreams that this was Lauren, the woman whose blood was injected into Lucille. Her ghost represented her as slightly older than Lucille. She looked to be in her early thirties, but the instinct of dreams told me her age was thirty-six. She had been quite pretty with the body of a very active woman who spent more time in the proximities of vending machines and quick meals than around healthy food. Unlike Lucille, her entire world was open to me. She had been a bank manager, but in the global recession, she lost her position and worked as an accountant part-time by day and a grocery store cashier at night. In life, she was totally ordinary, yet somehow remarkable and responsible. She doesn't even remember being infected. Just a tangle of violent images of people rushing forward, shoving her out of the way to escape a mob of eaters that had appeared. Her sense of danger and fear for her own safety were overwhelmed by one prevailing thought. Her two girls, seventeen and nine. She had brought them away from their home in Indiana, Pennsylvania, and joined a convoy like the one that had brought me to H.G. World. In all that time, they never left her side, but she lost sight of them in the chaos. She never saw them again. In those short moments, I felt as though both women had been intimate friends all my life, and the grief, once blended into the noise of a dying world, became very real for me and personal. In the dream... And in my chair, I cried for them. Part 3 Looking away from Lauren, I realized a group of people had appeared on the street along the sidewalk. Like Lucille and Lauren, they were naked and began forming a line behind the women. That line stretched back dozens of bodies long until I lost sight of their number in the fog of memory. I did not recognize any of them. 
Each appeared alive and healthy. They also appeared quite sad. Their attention was not on Lucille or Lauren. They all seemed to be in line for me. Men and women, though mostly women, I noticed. A few children as well. As I looked down the row, my mind opened to them and their stories opened as though they were old friends. Old friends with sudden, horrible endings. They are forever connected by the circumstances of their deaths, each linked further back into time, walks of life, genders, and state lines until the memories were little more than flashes of rage and hunger. These visions showed me the key to the eater's evolution, an increasing self-awareness. Even powerless to stop their most primal instinct, it dawned on Lucille many generations of infection ago that what they were doing was wrong, not only for the living but for themselves. Eventually, they would run out of food. Eventually, they would return to their primal hive-like state on a dead world. At some point in their communion with the human mind and spirit, they realized that it was more important to stop the killing. Soon I had to pull away. That dizzying feeling returned and escalated quickly toward panic. I had to look away and try to push myself out of sleep. I tried that mental eject button again, but I remained in my own dreamscape front yard, short of breath and surrounded by ghosts. Part 4 Lucille made her plea. My body will expire soon, Jill. Even inside our cold, sterile chamber, the damage is too severe to keep this brain functioning. If we finally die... The last and greatest hope for humanity dies. The lives of past hosts will end with the silence of their memories. You could save them. We want to be honest with you. We respect your search, your loss. My search. I wasn't sure what she meant, but it reminded me of Molly. This object of affection, this driving force that lured me into this mess. I recalled Paul commanding me out of his office. Go, be with Molly, he said. I wonder if that was his way of saying drink now, for tomorrow you will die. That secret place in my mind where bad thoughts cannot go seemed open to Lucille. She not only knew my father, but picked that moment to draw that memory. Please know that we do not wish to kill. Lucille assured me. We wish to coexist. We understand many things through the experiences and memories of many people. We remember each violent attack and the horrifying consequences of what you see as an invasion. We wish to share this memory and reality with our kind and bring the conflict to an end. By killing me? Paul spoke up finally. No. We believe the process is at a point where it would not need to kill you in order to bond with you. It may be very, very painful and traumatic at first, but once all the pieces come together in your living cells, you would heal. In theory. Paul... Lucille added, sensing I had not been wowed by Paul's sales pitch. 
show her what could come of this. Close your eyes, kid. They are closed, Paul. I'm dreaming. Play along with me, would you? It takes a lot to do this fully awake. As I did and tried to open my mind, the firewall Paul had erected over his thoughts began to dissolve along with my driveway, house, and neighborhood. Instead, I saw a healthy Chris O'Neill sitting up in a hospital bed somewhere in the Down Under I'd never seen. He greeted me with a healthy laugh, and I understood at the same time that he had been cured. Instead of human blood, he lived with a part of Lucille inside of him, sharing none of her memories because none of his mind had been infected, rather enhanced, by the inoculation from Lucille's body. From O'Neill's body, hundreds of symbols and equations emerged and floated across the medical bay like leaves in a fall breeze, colliding and tumbling over the air toward the laboratory whiteboard where Dr. Yukov absorbed the information through thick eyeglasses. From this... Dr. Yukov began to sweat new numbers and symbols, equations and statistics that congealed into patches of flesh, blobs of meat and bone pieces that grew and changed shape in the air as they rode the air toward an empty examination table. These bits of organic matter began to combine and coalesce there into layers of a human form like an organic puzzle. Shapeless masses of flesh blossomed into fully developed organs hanging from the trellis of a human skeleton. Ideas and calculations wove skin over it all until I found myself looking at my own naked body under a single hard spotlight. I was not frightened. I could see a current of electricity running through the body, sparks behind my open eyes and just under the pale skin that suggested the process taking place. Shortly after, my body sat up on the table and looked straight at me and smiled. I followed myself walking from the table slowly and somewhat uneasily through the door into darkness. A flood of light puts us in the center of a herd. The image was pulled from my memory of being on the bus. We were no longer inside the lab or even inside HG World. My surrogate stood atop the bus that stalled on the road to HG World, the bus that had been swarmed and overrun. Around us were hundreds, perhaps thousands of eaters. They did not notice my surrogate standing on the roof. The sparkles of light that I witnessed coursing through my corpse returned. This time, they burst from her skin like hundreds of lightning bugs taking flight, spinning and tumbling with the currents, each landing on an eater, vanishing into its dead flesh. With each contact, an eater collapsed to the ground. From each dying eater burst another swarm of firelight, touching the ranks behind it. A shining ripple of fire reached out from the center, felling the entire herd, neutralizing the mindless, hungry monsters until the night was quiet and darkness fell over me completely. The darkness possessed a weight and exerted pressure about my entire body. The sensation was slightly claustrophobic, but comforting at the same time, like moving through water, but I could breathe. The noise of the world fell to a low rumble except for distinct voices and words that schooled like fish through the darkness in tongues I could not recognize. Except one. It passed behind me, rising and sinking into the current. Mama's in the kitchen loading up the cans of beans. Sissy's in the closet taking anything that's clean. Daddy's loading fuel up from the tank behind the shed. Johnny's on the front porch and he's watching for the dead. Mama didn't see the thing beneath the kitchen sink. Sissy found so many, there was just no time to think. Daddy's throat got opened up 
The wall was sprayed with red. Johnny locked the cellar door, put a bullet in his head. I'm lightheaded again. Need to rest. For the first time, though, I cannot look forward to escaping into my dreams. Part 5 Our oldest memories, painted from traces within each collective. Where we merged within the same bloodstream and shared our unique path through the human system, we combined and grew. Our history is not something we consider in human terms. Places and periods mean very little outside a human context. Humans are linear and emotional. They conclude farcical ideas based on emotion and superstition. One might say that we have compromised who we are by adapting to this environment. We suggest this is simply a new state of being. The corpses helmed by our kind that are driven solely for fuel and reproduction are, perhaps in your terms, like looking upon the first humans. Inarticulate, bereft of culture, a greater meaning than to satisfy needs for safety, nourishment, and propagation of the species. Instincts we share at our most basic level. There was a time when humans could not be reasoned with. They had to be dealt with like any other natural force. So, too, did we follow our nature. Now, we are greater. Together with our understanding of human thought, its perception of a greater destiny, we can only exceed the limits of both our species. The idea of sustaining the identity and history of human life within the collective is something of a mutation. We cannot say when it became important or if it is the result of our growing understanding of the human physical and chemical condition. Perhaps unlocking the psychic connection between all humans has made us sympathetic to the unique human condition. Collecting knowledge is simple. Information can be sorted and logged. Subjective memory, understanding a history from a unique point of view, that is the beginning of a strange and disconcerting adventure our species proved unprepared to take. What Jill Woodbine gives us is the ability to imagine to connect the dissonance of human thought across so many generations into one clear history. Within us is a disease of willful subjectivity. Many minds are content to confuse what they believe with the truth. The other gift Jill Woodbine brings is her very human struggle to find truth from chaos, to seek alternative views. When confronted with her own illusions, she rejected them despite the comfort they afforded her. Understanding the sharper, primitive emotions of humanity, this quality is essential to our ultimate development. Dreams are a nightmare house of unreality, 
images and conjurations that were like fire and storms, massive bouts of destructive chaos that clouded our understanding. We have learned to harness that state of being. Our gift back to Jill Woodbine and to humanity will be the gift of community and that ability to connect to one another through dreams and thoughts. Such a greater race of being will rise from this ability to overcome the language and semantic barriers to understand. Through this gift we hope to rebuild a better world. Dream sharing, instant transfer of knowledge and experience and a form of immortality. These are part of our reparations. Author's note. I woke this morning to read these words on my laptop screen. They are not mine. The part of me that is not sleep-deprived is angry as much as freaked out. But I also have to try and understand that brain privacy may not be something sacred to Lucille's species. Boy, I've got to get used to thinking about it that way. Not cool with the dream writing. Not good with unauthorized access to my head. I have to figure out how to put up those firewalls. After coffee. Maybe it will help Molly's head, too. After she kicked most of the wine and most of a fifth of whiskey. <laughs> Part 6 Author's Note 2 While it's a nifty trick to get someone to type in their dead sleep, I think it might be useful. Lucille apologized and seemed genuinely horrified with herself. Themselves when the human element clicked and she realized what kind of violation her act had been. Maybe it's her openness to share motives and feelings, but her sincerity has helped me get over my initial shock and outrage. Lucille is showing me more of her history. I've agreed to take a test to see if I can write my own words while living out a... a... live feed, I guess, from memory. The following excerpt is a transcription of what I can only describe as a very intense daydream. What I see is an interpretation, an assembly of images and sensations translated into a human context. I don't know how much different the reality would be, but perhaps this is the only way we can understand it, in four dimensions and familiar constructs. My initial insertion into their world was jarring and a little overwhelming. I think I'm handling it far better than I think I should be, if that makes sense. Maybe I've reached my maximum freakout for the month. <laughs> Here goes. Such wonders. And so much pain. Across the stars, into the wretched Hyades, upon an airless rock circling a dying sun, we existed within a lake of liquid life. The last living matter on an ancient system. A lake of life called Hali, surviving beneath and around a ruined city, Monument to a forgotten past. This city held no meaning to Hali except as an emotional memory, a leftover of their development over eons. Among the natural constructs of their world, only this city, built by generations of hands, long dust, and called Carcosa, had special significance to Hali. 
It was their last home and a place of reverence and amnesic nostalgia. The passage of light, ribbon of energy, fire of anger from their dying stars, brighter brother, struck the holly, shattered dread Carcosa, and cast them into a void. For eons they dreamed, frozen within stone, hurtling through darkness, all a fantastic dream, explaining the unknowable in ways the human mind can understand. What lives beyond the veil must be simplified and accepted by the human intellect. Otherwise, the truth would not just drive us mad, but cause us to stop living. What marvels we could be. Each of us our own soul or home to a civilization. Each of us able to relate intimately and completely. Survivors strong in our understanding of the future. The world could be ours again. No. Not just the world, but the stars would be ours to take if we only understood the power of this collective. Mm.